Out of the 66 chapters, we now find ourselves in chapter 49. Yeah, we're getting there. You know, again, I've, I've reminded you, if you put this in perspective, the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah is the equivalent to teaching all of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So if it just feels like, are we going to be here forever? No, we're going to be done in about 20 more chapters. If you've missed any portion of the teaching, it's available in the media room. You can go to our website. Um, You can download it at your convenience. Isaiah 49. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great God. And heaven sings and earth sings. And the mountains sing. Lord, the heavens declare your glory and your greatness. And the Bible reveals your promises. It reveals your character. It reveals not only our present, but the whole future. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that during this time of study, that, Lord, you would speak to us about your great love. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us on how we can love each other and then love in a way that's honoring and glorying to you the people that we don't particularly care for. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 49, we begin a new division in the book of Isaiah. This is the second in a series of servant songs. There are four of them. Isaiah prophesies the servant of the Lord. He is the Messiah, his mission, his obedience. And here we have a divine note that was written 180 years before the children of Israel knew that they would be taken into Babylon. And we also have a holy conversation that takes place between the father and the servant who is the Messiah and Israel. And the chapter begins with a complaint in verse 14. And then it continues with both correction and comfort. This is one of the great love chapters in all of the Bible. And what it will do is it will cause us to think biblically about the question of love. How does God love sinners? How is it possible that he could love a murderer or a thief or a liar or an abuser or an oppressor or a wife beater or a pornographer or a complainer or an agnostic or an atheist or the person who spends their life in constant opposition railing against God. How can God love that person? I'm going to tell you how. Quietly, consistently, specifically. The Lord wants to save people. He wants to save them from that certain and just judgment that will eventually come to those who continue and then end their lives in ungodliness and unrighteousness, rejecting Christ. 
Isaiah the prophet peeks into the future. And as he peeks into the future, he gives us a mission of the Messiah, that God would send the Messiah into the world to save the world because of his great love for the world, to save the unbeliever, to save the discouraged, to save the deserted, to save the alienated, the forsaken, the forgotten, and the person who is weary. Remember what's happening. As the scroll of Isaiah is unfolded, the Jewish people find themselves on the bank of the Euphrates, captive, hurt. They need liberation from their bondage, from their captivity. They need to be free to return to the land, but they seem to need something more. They need more than just physical and political liberation. They need liberation from their sin. And for that, Cyrus, even though God would raise up Cyrus to release the children of Israel from their captivity, they need something else. They need something more. They need someone more. An everlasting Savior. Someone who will forgive them and cleanse them and then reconcile them back to the Father. And so in the first 13 verses, Isaiah will outline nine mission points of the Messiah. I'm going to give them to you quickly, and then we're going to go over them in the text. The first is that Messiah is God's servant from birth, a prophet and a special messenger. And so what I'm going to do is begin with the first 14 verses. Listen to what it says, Isaiah 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me. And take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. And my work with my God, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to whom, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. And he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. 
to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastors shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens. Be joyful, O earth. And break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people. forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. In these verses, it begins with the mission points. And like I said, number one, the Messiah is God's servant from birth, a prophet, a special messenger. He is the voice of God on the earth, and he demands that the whole world pay attention. But unlike Cyrus, the weapons of his warfare are not carnal or fleshly. Or of this world, they're supernatural to the breaking down of strongholds, like it says in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And number 2, the Messiah is called to proclaim the word of God, and he is like a polished arrow. The idea is a weapon that is specific, that's custom made. The Messiah is a weapon in the hand of God, a weapon of wonder. And the Messiah will send forth the word of God like an arrow, and it will wound and convict people for their own good. Bible writer says, but he compelled the attention of the world by the gospel of improbable strategies hidden until the time is right. He will emerge in history to conquer, not by military might, not by compulsion or cultural imperialism, but by the force of truth. That is Jesus. And number three, he's called to be God's servant, the new Israel, to do the work and the word that Israel should have done but couldn't do. Number four, the Messiah is called to live a life of dependence and trust in the true and living God. But we discover something. He'll still be despised and rejected. And then number five, the Messiah is called to redeem and then return and return Israel back to God. God would strengthen him for the task. And then God would greatly honor the Messiah. And then God would enlarge his mission. And number six, the Messiah would be called not simply as a light to the Jew, but a light to the Gentile. Jesus has been and was always intended to be the Savior of the entire world. And number seven, the Messiah would be called to suffer. He would be despised and rejected. And number eight, the Messiah would be called honored by rulers, citizens of this world. And number nine, the Messiah would be called God's covenant for his people. The covenant wouldn't be a series of rules and regulations. It wouldn't be a philosophical construct. He himself would be the covenant. So, we discover something. God has determined that the Messiah would be God's pledge. That the Messiah would be the down payment that he would fulfill his promises, restore the people to the land, assign God's 
inheritance to his people. And then the promise to set the people free from captivity and darkness. And then the promise to protect his people. And so it begins with him speaking to the servant in verse 1. Listen, O isles. He's speaking of the nations. And hearken, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. The old King James says, From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. What he's talking about is that the Messiah is from the womb called to be the servant. And as a matter of fact, in verse 2 it says, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me. And he made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And remember what that means. He is a specially designed weapon of, in the hand of God. And the sword is the sword of the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cleave between the soul and the spirit. The Word of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability to penetrate. It has the ability to rebuke, to convict, but also to comfort and provide. And in verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now you need to think for just a moment. In verse 3, the servant is identified as Israel. In verses 5 and 6, the same servant restores Israel. How can Israel restore Israel? How can Israel save Israel? Well, remember, a clue has already been given to us for those of you who've been studying Isaiah with us in chapter 48. Remember in verse 1, look what it says. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, but not in righteousness. The hurting, demoralized, dejected, broken captives find themselves in a position of bondage and slavery in part because of their rebellion and their disobedience. They failed to love God. They failed to obey God. They turned to idols. And remember what happened. The just result of their captivity. They failed in their historic mission. They did not live up to the name Israel. Christians sometimes don't live up to the name Christian. We don't live up to the name Christian. Follower of Christ. Not just believer of Christ, but follower of Christ. A person who is willing to walk where Jesus walked. Speak the words that Jesus spoke. Do the things that Jesus commanded. But here's the part. God's purpose in part was to bless Israel so the world would be drawn to the God of Israel. That's what it says in Psalm 67. Remember in Psalm 67 verse 1 it says, God be merciful to us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us. In verse 2 it says that your way may be known on the earth and so that your salvation will be known to all the nations. It was always God's intention that Israel represent and not misrepresent God. We have a responsibility to represent God. We 
Bible is a joke and Christianity is a joke and your life is a joke and your hypocrisy is proof that Christianity is a joke. Just a prayer. But the purpose of God is not And the purpose of God cannot be defeated. God will accomplish His plan and His purposes. He will do it with you or He will do it without you.
up with Jesus. Come to 
overwhelming the world with sheer force, with overwhelming power, like the arrogance of human beings, where arrogance, sin, is met with power. Jesus is not going to storm the planet. He is not going to overtake the world. He is going to do that which seems impossible. He will empty himself. He will take on the form of a servant. He will do it so completely that people will dismiss him as a simple peasant Galilean. The servants of the Christ are going to philosophically linked to the concept of servanthood. He is a servant. He is so thoroughly a servant. His meekness is so real that he's deeply misunderstood and he's deeply rejected. But God has resolved that the great, the mighty, the kings, the princes of the earth, they will put away their pride and they will honor Jesus as servant and Lord to the glory of God. Paul writes about the, the circumstance that we've already talked about when he quotes the book of Isaiah, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the way that God has chosen, the way of service, the way of humility. And in service and humility is the road to vindication. We become great.
acceptable time I have heard you. The time when Jesus comes. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. He shows up and redeems human beings. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant. This becomes so important because God made a covenant with Adam and He made a covenant with Noah and He made a covenant with Abraham and He made a covenant with Isaac and Jacob. He made a covenant with Judah. He made a covenant with David. And you've got to understand that the promises that were made were of Jesus himself. That is amazing. Jesus is the true covenant. Isaiah would have loved Charles Wesley's hymn of praise. It can it be. You may know some of the words. It goes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused in quickening ray. I rose. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was fire. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Look what it says in verse 9. That He may say to the prisoners, Go forth. To those who are in darkness, show Yourself. Do you understand what He's saying? The prisoners are those who are imprisoned in Babylon. But it's more than that. It's to everyone who's captured. It's to everyone who's imprisoned by drugs or alcohol. It's everyone who's imprisoned with pornography. It's everyone who's imprisoned with whatever addictive circumstances that they find themselves in. Go forth to those who are in darkness. Show yourself. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, come out of the darkness and into the light. Show yourself. You want to know why? People won't leave the darkness. According to the New Testament, it's because men love darkness rather than light because their because their deeds are evil. But here's the invitation of God. And here's the invitation of the servant. Come out of the darkness. Show yourself. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. The idea is if you will come out of the prison and if you will come out of the darkness, guess what? I'll care for you. I'll supply you. I will provide for you. I will forgive you. I will redeem you. Look what it says in verse 10. They shall neither hunger nor thirst. But that's what addiction is. They drive you. They drive you. They drive you. But the thirst is never satisfied. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. You've got to understand something. There's 500 miles of desert between Babylon and Jerusalem. You can't just leave. There's 500 miles of desert. How will we eat? How will we drink? How will we survive? And that's what happens many times with people come to Christ. that I am to the place that I need to be. The 
I will make each of my mountains a road. For those of you who've been in Colorado for a very long time and climbed 14,000 feet, there's a little oxygen deprivation. There's a big wall right in front of us. It's the front range. How can I pass? By the way, there was a series of mountain ranges between Babylon and Jerusalem, most notably in Afghanistan. I'll make each of my mountains a road. And my highway shall be elevated. What was high will be low, and what was low will be high. And all along the way, I'll provide for you. I'll walk with you. I'll be with you. Look what it says in verse 12. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and, and those from the land of Sinim. He's talking about the captives that come from the nations that are scattered around the world.
all that God has promised. No, the Lord has forsaken me. Can you imagine, even though they're being carried to heaven, frown on face, scowl, gloomy, sour, these are people who are impossible to please. ultimate praise. Praise in the heaven. Praise on the earth. Praise from creation. And their emotion is dead. The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. How frustrating. How exasperating. What do you do with an impenetrable heart? What do you do with an impregnable fortress cut off from joy? cut off from peace, impervious to goodness. The person who won't rejoice and celebrate in the promise of God, what do you do? Here's the question. What does God do? What does God do? Remember what he does in this chapter? He goes on proving on proving himself that he is still God. Isaiah reminds the reader of several things that he still cares, that he's still mindful of them, that he still hasn't forgotten them. Read it for yourself. Look what it says in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. No, what he doesn't do. Rejecting pagan. Carnal Christian. Loser.
emotionally, physically, chemically. Things start to happen inside of your body that prepares the body that you're going to have a baby. The expectation is for a baby. Everything is rewired so that you will have a baby. So for a mother to have a baby, Sometimes husbands are very insensitive. They don't understand. If, if a, a woman loses a baby in the, in the first trimester or between three and six months, and, and oh, you know, that's very sad. Oh, so sorry, so sorry you lost your baby. But they don't, they don't understand the overwhelming grief and the circumstances that take place physically and anatomically and chemically. And the Lord's saying, if it's that difficult for a mother... And even though it might be possible that a mother could do that, I could never do that. And then Isaiah uses an image or a metaphor of God spreading out his hands before us. And look what it says. Surely they may forget, yet I won't forget you. And look at verse 16. See? Look. Behold, it says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You know what he's inviting them to do? and look what's written on the palms of my hands. Now you've got to understand something. He uses the Hebrew word engraved. It's more than a tattoo. The idea is that the name has been carved permanently. My father, <laughs> when he got married to my mother, he tattooed. Now you got to remember, this is the middle 50s when tattoos are he tattoos my mother's name on his arm. Desert. Eighteen months later, they get a divorce. And so then he tattoos an ex-girlfriend. And then he tattoos his next wife's name. Down underneath it. Now you've got to understand something. When somebody tattoos their name on your body, it's a pretty big commitment. But the Lord uses but of a tool that creates a womb is permanent. And the womb becomes a type and a picture of the wounds that are in the servant's palms for life and for a death. He wants you to know that from the very beginning it was always his intention to communicate his love in a profound and irreversible way. That's what that text means. And when it says, See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You know what walls he's talking about? He's talking about the walls of Jerusalem. Because remember, life is in Jerusalem. And prayer is in Jerusalem. And worship is in Jerusalem. And they want to go back to the place that God had Look at verse 17. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away with you. The people 
will make a run for it. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go with you. The people who used to torment you, the people who used to persecute you, the people who used to make fun of you. You know what he's in effect saying? Even though I'm going to fulfill my plan and purpose, all of your friends, the friends who said, you're a Jesus freak, you're a Christian. Oh man, that's weird. That's stupid. That's wrong. You're going to get an opportunity to talk with them about God. And guess what? They're going to get saved. And they're going to go with you. And look at verse 18. Lift up your eyes. Look around you. All these gathered together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourself with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does for your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place that that I will dwell. All of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the loss and all of the deprivation that takes place in captivity The Lord is promising the children of Israel an abundant provision. Verse 21, Then you shall say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone. But these, where were they? Do you understand what's happening? Isaiah is imagining a woman who's barren, childless. Imagining a woman who's barren and childless who now has a multitude of happy children. In other words, now think, ladies, those of you who've had children. If you've never had children, then all of a sudden you come home to a household of children. Isn't it appropriate? Where did these kids come from? I don't remember having these kids. I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was an NPR broadcast. A lady was 60 years old. She was talking about in her early 20s, she had two abortions. She aborted the first child. She aborted the second child. And then in her adulthood, she became pregnant and she miscarried. And then she miscarried again. She said something very, very strange on the program. She said, I'm 60 years old. I had two abortions. that I don't feel guilty. I just feel sad that I'm not able to have children. But Isaiah paints a picture of a woman just the opposite, who's been devastated. Who's been devastated. And in that devastation, the devastation has been replaced by fullness. Isaiah 22 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The picture is the children of Israel coming into the land of promise healthy. And in verse 23, Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed to wait upon me. You've got to understand something. No home, no temple, no place to worship. Their life is over. And God says, I'm going to restore it all. And in 
verse 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered. Verse 25, for thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. You understand what he's saying? I have a plan and a purpose. I will fulfill my plan and my purpose. The Jews won't die and they won't disappear. I will fulfill my plan and my purpose. What is Isaiah saying? Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? You know what he's basically saying? How can someone so hurt? How can someone in so much bondage? How can someone who is so totally addicted, whose life is so totally ruined, how can a person whose life has been so totally destroyed be helped? And the Bible says, because the Deliverer is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming. Can sinners be saved? Yeah. More and more people are coming to Christ. Well, is this religious expansionism? Is this religious globalism? Is this the tedious imperialism of man-made religion? No. Isaiah is heaping assurance upon assurance upon assurance. Remember what I've said. Messiah is coming. He's going to fulfill his promises. We've been forsaken. And now he gives even more promises and more assurances. God is challenging the people to think. We've been abandoned. Discipline? Yes. Abandon? No. Have you been disciplined? Discipline? Yes. Abandon? No. Do you understand what's happening? This is the future of the church by God's decree. We will bring forth children. We will be surrounded by tongues and tribes and nations. And people will be saved. And people will be saved from the north and the south and the east and the west. And here's what you have to understand. In spite of our failure, in spite of our wickedness, in spite of our barrenness, in spite of our hypocrisy, how can someone who is barren and hypocritical give birth to a child? It is God. It is God. It is the Lord God. It is the Lord God providing the children. The church is too big. The plan is too big. Just simply entrust with sinful human beings. God made the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And neither will the hypocrisy and the failure and the inconsistency of the church. It won't be our faith that grows the church. You know what it will be? It's God's deep resolve to show mercy and love to more and more sinners. In the final triumph of grace, we won't pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. We'll stutter in amazement. Look what it says in verse 21 again at the end of the chapter. Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and desolate and captive, a wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? God. God, He saved them. He redeemed them. He 
Isaiah declares he is the blood, the boundless love, the powerful love, the lingering love on all who are slow to believe, on all who are slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. that person who's been so hurt and so wounded, who feels forgotten and forsaken, Lord, I pray that you would keep assurance upon assurance upon assurance. Lord, as you communicate that love for that person who is here and they just feel so devastated, unable to sing, unable unable to enjoy salvation, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, Lord, I pray that you would communicate the promises of assurance that you've given to them, Lord, I pray that they would come to a place of perfect humility and submission, that they would embrace gratitude that you love them so much, that you're willing to save them so thoroughly, in spite of the failure and the hypocrisy of Christians.
what will it take to convince you that God loves you? Will wounds do the trick? Truth is, if that doesn't convince you, I have no idea what will. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance. The Lord fulfill the gifts and callings that He's placed on your life so that you could represent Him to a watching world. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. side wing to my right and the two middle sections and that left wing to take the uh, chair straight back.